The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm alone in our virtual recording studio today. But we have a great conversation for you this week. Medea and I speak with Justin Torres about his latest novel, Blackouts. Across a series of conversations and exchanges between two friends as one is approaching his death, Blackouts explores both real figures from queer history as well as the queer desire for history, and maybe we might say a kind of queer way of making history. And that satisfies this kind of longing to know a queer place and people that were here before us and which therefore help us feel anchored in the present. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Justin Torres, and thank you for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I'm thrilled to have Justin Torres with us on the line today. Justin is the award-winning author of We the Animals, his 2012 debut novel that has since been translated into 15 languages and adapted as a feature film, a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, a Stegman and Coleman Center fellow, as well as professor of creative writing at UCLA, Justin joins us today from the East Coast, where he's on tour promoting his latest book, Blackouts. Read by many critics thus far as a loose sequel to We the Animals, Blackouts offers a layered and lyric exploration of queer history, focalized through the frame narrative of a deathbed encounter between two men, one of whom is in his late 20s, referred to as Nene, by the other, who is an elderly man named Juan Gay, who is nearing the end of his life in an institution they both call the Palace. The two men met nearly a decade ago at a mental institution, but they gather again both so that Nene can be with Juan at his death and to complete a quest that Juan set out for him, to uncover the story of Jan Gay, the real-life pseudonym of real-life lesbian sexologist Helen Reitman, whose pioneering contribution to the study of sex variants was erased by the white male researchers who both enabled and took credit for what became the landmark 1941 study, Sex Variants, a Study of Homosexual Patterns. Spliced throughout blackouts are the blacked-out excerpts from a copy of Sex Variants. The text remaining between expurgated lines offers us a kind of poetry about queer desire, survival, and erasure. As we read those extracts, and as Juan and Nene tell each other stories about Jan Gay and themselves, sometimes in the form of old Hollywood-style scripts, sometimes in prose boards, sometimes merely in conversational exchanges, we gather the bits and pieces of a queer history from the early 20th century. That cobbled-together history resonates both as inheritance and enigmatic explainer for the suffering and pleasure of the book's characters, but more broadly, too, for queers and others on the margins whose lives and histories are so often relegated to unreliable snatches from the archive. Along with the narrator and Nene's lapses into unconscious or semi-conscious fugue states, these are the novel's blackouts, ones that inscribe not only the stories of the two men in the novel, but queer history and our relationship to it on two. 
In the end, Blackouts is a powerful and moving novel about sexuality and intelligibility, about how we know who we are, the gossamer threads that bind together queers and people of color as both an identity and felt, if not exactly real, sodality, as well as the power of literature to excavate and supplement the gaps in that history. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a really wonderful introduction. Okay, Justin, maybe we should just start at the, hopefully, a truthful beginning. How did this book come together? I mean, I don't even know. That's the truthful answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, banging my head against the keyboard. There's a sex marriage study itself, the 1941 study that, was, that took place in the 1930s of these 40 men and 40 women who gave testimonies about their sex lives and family lives. And my discovery of that like accidental random discovery of of that text is a starting place, I think, for sure. I was also working on a collection about a sex worker in his late 20s, and it was kind of linked stories, more kind of similar to what I'd done in We the Animals. And that manuscript I lost, left it in the back of a train. You actually lost it? I actually lost it, yeah. Like, it was the only copy was on my laptop, and I left my laptop on this train. And so, like, there are vestigial bits. Like, I have these stories that I'd emailed myself or that had been published elsewhere that that are in Blackouts, kind of reworked. I guess that's, like, another starting place. It's kind of, like, everything that I've been reading and thinking and writing over the last 12 years. And how did you accidentally discover the sex variance text? I was working in a bookstore in San Francisco called Modern Times, which is this kind of anarchist, collectively owned bookstore that sold new and used books and like zines. (laughs) It was going out of business, sadly. Somebody brought in a box of donations and in there were all these books that I recognized, um, texts from pre-Stonewall texts. G, Janae, Radcliffe Hall, those are the ones that like, pop out in my memory but there was a whole bunch and it was clear that it was somebody's library somebody queer and it was also pretty clear that the person had died like it just it had that vibe and there was this two volume study in there and I started reading it and it was so disturbing and fascinating and engaging like all at once and I knew I wanted to do something with it I tried to kind of enter it in different ways. I tried to write historical fiction, which was terrible. <laughs> I tried to think a lot about how it came to be in the world because there was these competing kind of discourses, the very pathological discourses of the committee that was conducting the study. And then the language itself of the testimonies that somebody had clearly transcribed with great care and great attention and really wanted to make each voice kind of individuated and and reflect where it was coming from. And I was like, who did this? Like, who did this work? There's something there. And so I'm not a trained historian. I'm not a great researcher, but eventually I was able to find Jan Gay. I'm curious to pick up a thread here that I kept feeling throughout the novel, and I think it's very self-consciously there, is an exploration of queerness as a kind of literary identity, by which I mean like one that we 
arrive at either through literature, but also film. So here I'm expanding a little bit of the idea of reading to the films and books that Juan in the novel makes reference and allusion to as he's kind of unfurling his personal history. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it means to have an identity that's gleaned not from like a family history per se, possibly from an oral tradition, but one that is literary in that way, one that's constructed through a shared relationship to books and films and accounts and literature. Yeah, that's such a, such a great question. At the very end of the book, there's a epigraph <laughs> that is in the footnotes that I thought would I thought would open the book originally. It was for a long time. It was the very first bit of text that you encounter, and it's from Irvin Goffman, and it's from his book Stigma, and he talks about how members of any stigmatized category come to know themselves. They have a literarily defined version of themselves because as stigmatized as they might be, as alone as they might feel within that, whatever that kind of identity group is, people are talking about them all the time, often in pathological ways, often they're minor figures in films or or books, but like there's, if you want to seek out others like you, there is always a literature of some kind. And I think that Wong in the book is really trying to get the narrator to understand. The narrator's like, you know, he's in his late 20s, he's a little bit self-obsessed. He's like, he's a bit of a sad boy. <laughs> and and one is like, maybe other people have thought about these things that you're thinking about. Maybe other people have written about these. Maybe there's an entire world out there that you can engage with and know yourself better by engaging with the literature. And a lot of that literature that one suggests is fantastic, right? It's kind of... Latino, Latinx, Latin American, even like, you know, he calls them like fairy forefathers or whatever, you know, like, like writers like Puig and Pinheiro and Rufo and like these figures that one is like, read, 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 right? <laughs> and then some of that literature is weird early sexology with a lot of eugenicist thinking and weird kind of pseudo Freudian terrible ideas about homosexuality and its sources or or sociological ideas of homosexuality as a social disease. And, but it's also the literature, right? It's like, it's also the way that you come to know yourself, your place in the world, and how you've been understood through time and history. Yeah, just to, to ask a bit more. So obviously you're also a teacher, so you're engaged with the youth on a regular basis. <laughs> um, but I kept thinking about like, Juan's relationship to Nene. So as you said, he's like a a guy in his late 20s. But like all the things that Juan is calling up for him, they remind me of like all the older gay men that I have been fortunate to know also, you know, that they are repositories of knowledge, but they're they're very fragile repositories. And that's not like an ageist thing. It's just that when Juan is dying in the novel, what we fear dies with him is all the stuff he hasn't been able to transmit to the narrator. So I wonder if you think there's, like if if this kind of literary identity we're talking about is changing for a younger generation for whom like Juan's illusions and also I very much worry his like camp sensibility is not necessarily accessible or transmittable. Is that just me feeling like an old gay and being like, oh, no, <laughs> nobody's reading anymore. How will they know about Streetcar Named Desire? How will they know all these old films? You know, but what's your feeling about that? I think I share some of the same kind of 
paranoia. We'll see if it plays out. Something is always dying and slipping out of the world, right? Something essential about queer culture and queer identities and ways of relating to one another are always disappearing. Like that's just the nature of time and change. But some things need to be preserved and handed down. And it's essential, I think, that we think about intergenerational queer dialogue because there's nothing, there's nothing forcing it, right? There's no like family structures that are gonna just create the conditions where you're just hanging out with your grandparents and getting the stories from the old days, right? Like you have to seek out queer elders and you have to seek out an engagement with the youth as well and not be constantly shaking your fist at them and being like, why have you changed? Why are you, why are you different than I am? But I think that it takes work. And one of the things that I kind of, I think you're, you're saying this as well, that I really don't want to see go away is, is a kind of camp sensibility, right? It's this kind of idea that that life is a cosmic joke, right? <laughs> and that learning to laugh at that joke and laugh on your way out of this world is the ultimate triumph, right? It's what Juan's able to do and that's what he's able to kind of impart to the narrator as, as he's leaving. And I think reading, it's always meant so much in queer culture, like that word, that verb, right? To read, to be read. There's a sense in which it was a necessary survival tactic, right? Like reading the room, reading the intentions of others, reading for code. How do you find other queers, right? Like you're constantly, you have to be able to read in this way, situations. And then also, yeah, the literature, like actually actually reading <laughs> actual books. I think that it's interesting how reading somebody to filth, like, all the young queers understand that. That's very like RuPaul, right? <laughs> but there's so many other senses of that word and, and its importance to queer culture that help we maintain. Much of this book takes place in this room that's full of books. And Juan is, is very much passing down this culture to Nene. I was curious, like, do you have, do you feel like you have like a personal canon that you refer to? That's a really great question. I think that I didn't have much exposure to queer literature or Latinx literature or anything for a very long time. And so it was an active, it was something that I actively sought out and built upon. And I tried to work as many of those references as, as possible in here. There are books that are hugely important to me that I don't mention in here, like, um, you know, City of God by Gil Quadros or Everything Wretched. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, David Wanorovich, like Irving Bear, like these, a lot of these writers that have meant so much to me at various points in my life that aren't directly referenced. But then there's tons that are, right? Tony K. Bambara, the ones I've mentioned already, Puig and Pinar and the rest. So, and then some, some academic stuff, like I've got a quote from Heather Love in here and, Patrizia Gervici's book, The Puerto Rican Syndrome, was like huge. When I read that, I was like, what? This book is amazing. But not, not a ton. That's, my canon more tends towards dark, edgy books about queer suffering and survival. <laughs> it strikes me that you said when you say that, that you had to actively sort of seek it out, that like one of the things that Nene does 
And that you said earlier, you know, that it's kind of like there's no family structure where you're just like listening to your grandparents tell a story. And so you're kind of just taking it all in. And like what happens here is also like a very active sort of creation of kinship between these two people and a very active creation of kinship between Jan, Zhenya and Juan, where they kind of take him in to their own fold and that they're sort of all kind of responsible for creating these kinship ties with each other while also excavating the many familial losses that they've suffered. So I wonder if those two things are related as well. This like, this feeling of like actively seeking out your literature, but also actively seeking out forms of kinship when they don't just exist for you. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Juan, you know, there's a disruption in his early life from his family of origin. The narrator has a very kind of intense disruption and break with his family as well. There's a sense of dislocation, I think, that kind of permeates the book. And I think that the connection that they make, the original connection they make, is 10 years before when this book is set, when they're both institutionalized in the same mental hospital. And that's when the spark of of kinship and recognition, that's when it begins. And the intimacy and intensity of finding someone under circumstances like that, when you feel so alone and so rejected and so betrayed. And there's a special kind of kinship that is evoked in that moment. I think something similar, yeah, happens with Juan as a child and these lesbian women who are, who see, who recognize the kind of softness in him and feel very protective of him. And then I think the other thing that was important to me to get at, because these are all like very warm and cuddly ways of describing kinship, right? There's also something that I've had quite a lot in my own life that I love and enjoy, which is a kind of erotic friendship with somebody older, right? Like this this is also one of the hallmarks, especially of gay male identity, but of queer identity in general, right? This kind of where there's this erotic charge and it drives a certain kind of intimacy. And whether or not that's consummated in some kind of sexual act or not, like in this book, Juan is literally on his deathbed. They're not, they're not boning, right? <laughs> but it's still, it's still there, right? This, it's still driving the book. It's still driving their dynamic. And because like mentorship can seem so corporate and safe, right? Like as a term. And there's something else, like there's some kind of romantic friendship, whatever you want to call it, that I think helps the exact exchange of lineages and, and ideas of inheritance. And, you know, like it helps kind of, I was going to say like lubricate, that is so <laughs> tacky in this particular moment. It's the wrong word. But it eases, <laughs> facilitate. It eases, facilitate, yeah, right? Like it, it, it eases that transmission, I think. It's like a reason to pay closer attention. I wanted to get sex in this book a lot as well, because I, I worry sometimes that we can de-sex everything about queerness. I think that's, to me, one of the many achievements of the novel is that it it has a strong sexual presence without feeling like sex dominates. You know, it's not entirely the raison d'etre for these two men being together, right? It's like, I love, there's a moment early on where Nene is he's kind of walking around Juan's room only in his underwear because he wants to give him a thrill. Like he, and he knows that, and this is also uniquely gay because it's not 
it's not exploitative. It's not icky or gross. It's also not even necessarily like specifically sexual or like it won't necessarily lead to like a blowjob or to them fucking like you said, like, but it's, it's there as like a part of the fabric. I'm also curious along these lines of like the way that one comes to know history as a queer person, which is that saturates the kind of narratives that we have inside of blackouts. You know, it's both the main characters, but also Jan Gay. And there's, you know, the critic Christopher Nealon folds that desire into what he calls like the foundling identity of queer people. And this is specifically about that early 20th century period. But he's saying basically that it's like, because they are orphaned, like because they're not born into typically like a family of queer people, they kind of have to look beyond those biological boundaries, which we've been talking about as kinship. But it's also a problem of relating to history that I find like really interesting in this novel because Blackouts explores, for example, how those actual recorded histories, right? They come to us in scraps that we have to piece together, like blacked out portions of a text. Also, they're the broken and distorted records that are left for us by heterosexism and racism in the quote-unquote official record. I know that the historian Hugh Ryan, who we've had on the show before, talks a lot about that. Can you talk a little bit about this queer desire for history, like the desire for queer people to have a lineage but also how that desire comes up against a history that's often unreliable or comprised only of scraps. And if like fiction is maybe like a way in which we can restore that history in a way that isn't diminishing it, but actually like a very queer act of recuperation. There's so much in that question. One of the things is that I did have this recuperative and restorative impulse. I really did. I really tried to write historical fiction at first. I tried, I had these 40 men and 40 women. I was like, they're all amazing and they all deserve to be characters. And and I quickly realized like, I actually don't have these people. They were anonymized, right? They were photographed naked, their faces were blurred. They were written about in quite dehumanizing ways. And the focus was constantly on pathology, right? And what behaviors are pathological. And so I was like, I don't have people. I have this weird text. And to something about restoring or recuperating, it was like, it was almost too far. Like it was like, you know, the idea that fiction can somehow magically heal. I started to get a little creeped out by my own impulse. Right? I was like, actually, maybe I need to really, the history is one of being othered like the pain and the injury of that, like it's the history as well. And I need to like emphasize that and not pretty things up too much. (laughs) And so, so like that was one thing that was going on. I think that another thing that was occurring to me is that a lot of this history was suppressed by a dominant culture. A lot of it was purposely hidden, right? Like this is ours. It's not for them. It's not for public consumption, right? And so kind of honoring that desire to remain underground, right? Like that got me thinking about whatever the problems of of engaging with queer history in this way. And I don't have good answers for any of this. I wanted to both, and this is why there's that epigraph from Heather Love, right? Where she talks about this. She's writing about queer artists engaging with the past. And she says that like, there's this urge to, document and to disappear. And I think that 
the book just is in that ambiguity, right? It's so much a book about engaging with history and about, and about the documents and about rescuing Jan Gay's work in this study and the fact that she was this amazing, radical lesbian researcher who was such a pioneer in so many ways and foregrounding her. And also a lot of the book is about what is hidden, what might remain hidden and how to emphasize the kind of gaps and erasures. I don't know if I've answered anything in there, but those were the things that were bouncing around in my mind. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Justin Torres, author of Blackouts. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Filmmaker and author Anna Biller with me on the line today. Her new book is a novel. It's called Bluebeard's Castle, and Anna is going to give us a book recommendation. Anna, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese. Okay, tell us more about the book. Well, Wide Sargasso Sea is a prequel to Jane Eyre, written in 1966. And it's about the first Mrs. Rochester, who is the, in Jane Eyre, she's the mad wife locked in the attic. And about how he found her in the West Indies and her life there. And it's just really, really chilling because it shows him to be such a horrible person who's so callous and thoughtless and selfish and mercenary. He married her for money. And it's just the abuse that he heaped on her and she was so unloved. And I just thought that was so interesting because it makes you think about like what sort of person would actually lock his, his wife in the attic. You know, it's sort of like glossed over in Jane Eyre. (laughs) And it's very much like a thing where you're kind of like, yeah, so Jane Eyre got, you know, she got the prize. She got Rochester, but what about this other wife? What is she doing? Like, what is she doing locked in that attic? Like, who is she? She's from the West Indies and like we don't know anything about her. And I think it's suggested that she's, I think that she's mixed race. And there's something about that book that is so powerful, that it seems like such a powerful contribution to the Jane Eyre story. And just to the concept of, of I guess, that these men, it really paints Rochester as a kind of bluebeard. He doesn't have a death locked in a room, but he's got a, a live woman who's mad And it seems like he's very much driven her mad. So he's like caused her madness and then locked her away and the cruelty of it. And it's so beautifully told and beautifully realized and imagined. And you just think about how, you know, the white woman was the victor and the mixed race woman was the one who was devalued and discarded, locked up. And, you know, I'm a mixed race woman of color. <laughs> so there's a way in which I, I respond to it, which was was quite strong. Yeah. And it really, there's a colonialist subtext to almost all of those books. And Jane Reese really makes it explicit. Oh, very much, very much. And then the, it's also complicated because she herself was kind of, she was privileged in the plantation. The slaves turned against her family, destroyed her family. So she was kind of in this, the character was in this interesting position. I think her mother was taken from her. Mother was driven out as well. It's just a very, very sad story, but it's just also, yeah, it really shines a light on the sort of 
colonial situation and um and all these different things like a great sort of like modernist um reworking of elements of that story thank you anna for that recommendation will you tell us the title of the book again and the author wide sargasso sea by jean reese great we've been speaking with anna biller her new book is called bluebeard's castle You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Justin Torres, author of Blackouts. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the form of the book. For listeners who've not read it, much of it is actually dialogue. But then there's also pieces of it that are, I guess, more recognizably prose fiction. And then there's these really interesting interludes that are film plots, or they are Juan and Nene tell each other stories via movie plots and scenarios. And I was curious about why you resorted to that form in parts of the book. What did it do for you that the other parts didn't? The whole book is just two men in a room with, in the dark talking. Right, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's no plot. Like, that's it. Um, and... I had arrived at that because I knew I wanted to write about this kind of intergenerational relationship and like relating to history in this way. So I'd, I'd gotten these men in, in the room and I was writing that. And then I reread Kiss of the Spider Woman by Manuel Puig. And I had read it a long time ago and kind of forgotten how formally experimental and brilliant it is. Like I just, I remembered so much about the characters and their relationship, but I hadn't remembered the structure and just how brilliantly it all comes together. And, you know, of course, a big part of that book is Molina, the gay hairdresser, recounting the plots of movies to the revolutionary Marxist that he's sharing a prison cell with, right? And so I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Like, I'm already doing this thing, which clearly, like, was coming from having read Christmas Spider a long time ago without realizing it. I was like, let me pay a more direct homage slash steal more <laughs> absolutely from this masterpiece and have them narrate these film plots. It was also a way of me getting in what I talked about before, these kind of sex work stories that were like I had bits of. And a lot of them I had written very shortly after We the Animals and they were stylistically kind of similar and more conventional prose, straightforward prose fiction. And I had changed as a writer. I'd wanted to change. Like one of the reasons I took so long this book because I really wanted to change and do something radically different. And so I changed so much. So I was looking at those pieces and being like, huh, I made some choices here that I'm not sure I would have (laughs) made now. And what the lovely thing about Juan and having one character narrate a story to another or narrate a, the plot of a film to another is that one gets to interject and be like, oh, so you're going to have a flashback at the moment of sexual climax? Like, really? That's what we're doing here? And it was a way to, like, interject at some levity into some kind of slightly sentimental, self-serious writing that I, that I tend towards already. And also the making up of film plots emphasizes the artificiality of like, this is not historical fiction, right? This is two men imagining 
a real life woman's life story and making it into a film and making a lot up. And so hopefully it points people towards the real life Jane Gay and they want to do research, they want to know about her and also makes it a kind of enjoyable read, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's another kind of push and pull that I saw in the novel and I don't know exactly how to talk about it, which is why I figured I would ask about it. It's one that's historically specific to the time that the study comes from. So basically to the world that Jan Gay comes to us out of. But it's basically this like push and pull between a medical account of, let's say, homosexuality or queerness. So that these testimonies, medical documents, the sexology scripts, those are a route to self-knowledge. So that's on one hand. And then there's something else that I think Juan is gesturing at. I'm not sure, but it's like, it appears perhaps as a kind of explanation or account of queerness that is maybe more spiritual or ineffable, or maybe the word I'm searching for is actually aesthetic, like that it it is in objects and performances and surfaces that we see in Juan and Nene's attempts to kind of grapple with how to know oneself in history. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because neither one seems totally satisfying, right? Like the medical account is like, my fear of that is that it's like, in the born this way narratives, I understand why they're appealing, but it's like, if we can isolate a gay gene, that makes us very easy to eradicate through like sexual eugenics, right? Like there's, you can hear the like sound of jackboots in the distance. But then if queerness, like, I don't know, some kind of magic has no real history, or if it's, you know, to borrow the language of the fairies, you know, like that it just kind of appears out of nowhere as an enduring phenomenon, like that feels powerful in some ways, but also like, wait, but what? Like, but that's like, so it's this push and pull between the aesthetic and the hard science that I think the characters are also trying to grapple with out of the history that they're trying to account for too. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really insightful. I remember when I was, I don't know, I must have been like 12 or something. I was home from school, maybe skipping school. (laughs) And I was like watching daytime television or whatever. And I don't remember if it was Oprah or like, was it Jenny Jones or like like one of us? Sally. (laughs) Sally, maybe it was Sally. But I remember that they were talking exactly about if you knew your child was going to be gay would you abort it? And like, you know, three quarters of the audience or the whoever they polled or whatever, you know, said, yes, absolutely. And just how deeply that struck. You know what I mean? Like how terrifying that was for me and disturbing. And it's not like I didn't know about the world. <laughs> I'd had enough experience at that time in my life to know that everybody hated faggots. Like it was, it wasn't news, but it was still so scary. Right. And I think that you're absolutely right that the sexology stuff will endlessly fascinate me. The kind of eugenicist stuff and the Puerto Rican syndrome stuff and all of that stuff of like, you know what I mean? Just like locating pathology in identities that are like completely shape-shifting. They're amorphous. They're changing all the time. And yet there's this, always going to be this desire and I think you're absolutely right that what motivates that desire is stamping something out or controlling something right it's not like 
let's discover the gay gene so everybody can be gay. Right? Yeah. Like, that's definitely not what's going on. And I think that I will always have a fascination with that aspect of identity formation. It's so much of, of American history, right? Like so much of this identitarian stuff comes from stigma and shame and it comes from medical harm. Like it's a rallying point that actually unites people of shared identities in a certain way, right? Like as much as it does harm to them. And I think that's all really incredibly fascinating. And then of course, yeah, there's the aesthetic, there's the cultural, there's the the flair and the I mean, why do I sound like this? Why do I have such a gay voice? I never met a gay man, like an out gay man, until I was like a teenager. You know, like how do where did I get this from? You know, like there's something just magical and unexplainable and like there's something in my psyche subconscious I don't know that's like since I was a child it's telegraphing sissy like I am a pansy sissy (laughs) and despite every conscious intention I had to hide that bury that deny that right like it still came out and I think that yeah it's all magic well that's actually what I was going to ask you I was going to did you grow up or did you have a figure or maybe many figures like Juan to sort of lead you, lead you through this kind of discovery and lead you away from what you heard as a, as a 12 year old into something that felt not as sort of a a dead end kind of where you're, you're literally like aborted. I mean, I, I think that, like in my own personal life, I mean, I've talked about this elsewhere, but yeah, I mean, I was institutionalized when I was 17. And until that moment in time, I had never received a single positive message about gay men or, or women or any queers of any kind. <laughs> like I just, there was nothing. I mean, yeah, I was born in 1980. I came into the world the same time as AIDS came to the world. You know, the only thing that I knew, like, everything I was learning about about being gay was equated to death and demonization of gay men. And so it was actually in the hospital that I did have a very gentle, incredible experience with someone who, I mean, people were still more delicate about these things as well, right? Like, like I said, like I telegraph, I telegraph pansy all the time in every way, but until... I was ready to accept it and talk about it. Nobody was going to be like, but there was gentle ways in which the person I'm thinking of in particular was able to just be like, oh, maybe you should check out this. Maybe you should, maybe you should look at the, read this book, you know? And then once I had this, I did have this kind of dramatic coming out that I was kind of forced out. And then I kind of quickly was like, okay, shame almost killed me. Now, now I'm going to like not be ashamed of anything. And that's when I kind of dove headfirst into everything I could find and read. And, and in the beginning, it was literary kind of like mentorship, right? Like that was, that was the first place that I, that I had this connection to other generations. But I'm incredibly fortunate in that there's so many times in my life there have been men, and sometimes it's just like very fleeting, short-lived interactions but so many times there have been men and older women older like lesbian women who just really were like let me help you get out 
of yourself a little bit, right? <laughs> Let me connect you to all of the reading and thinking that's been done. You're like, let me connect you to a sense of queer history. And, you know, really kind of intervened when I was very, very lost. I, I was, for many years, for a good decade, 15 years, you know, I was very lost and kind of wandering through my own life. And I did have these, sometimes it was a professor. I'm thinking of like Morris Kaplan, who was a philosophy professor at SUNY Purchase that I went to for like less than a year. <laughs> like it dropped out. But he brought me to his graduate class at the new school. I was not enrolled in the new school, but he was just like, come. I was not a graduate. I was 18, 19 years old, you know? But he was like, come sit in this class. It's on Plato's Symposium. Learn, right? And I just sat there. So I had no idea what anybody was talking about. But I read along, you know, I read the symposium and a lot of blackouts is a Socratic dialogue, right? Like, it's like, this is, this is one, of, it's like one of these amazing interventions in my life where I was like, oh, here is a kind of erotically charged intergenerational dialogue and exchange and, and here's queer history. Like, it was just, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing to do. I mean, I teach. I don't know who I would do that for. <laughs> like, like it's an administrative headache, you know? <laughs> I have been the recipient of that kind of generosity more times than I can count. And, and the whole book is a kind of love letter to, to like brilliant people who take the time to nurture the next generation. It also seems like a kind of love letter, maybe literary perhaps, to that pre- Stonewall, like pre-World War II world of like queer culture and art, right? So there's, I know you've talked about, and I share a similar love for like all of the, you know, Harlem Renaissance writing that's very queer, the like, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that early 20th century period is like, it often comes to us in the present as kind of like a, it's like a double-edged sword, right? For queer people. It's both a time of we don't want to say that people are not persecuted now because they absolutely definitely are. But it's this period of, oh, it was awful back then. This is the Heather Love thing, right? That it's like, it's awful back then. It's better now, we think, allegedly. But it was also a time, and Juan kind of engages with this, when queer people were, in his account, like freer with their identities and sexuality, simply because they didn't really yet have like these circumscribing sociopolitical identities like gay, lesbian, or trans that would kind of define their lives or experiences today. And for Juan, that going back into the archive and seeing these lives is uplifting. If not like rescuing, it's kind of like helps him to feel something different. Can you talk a little bit about what that kind of period and that era of queer identity means to your characters and also maybe what it means to you as a resource or how it functions for you as a resource as a writer. At the turn of the century, like, and into the 20s and 30s, all through the first half of the 20th century, their taxonomies are not ours. And all of that is in flux. All those definitions are in flux. Everything is, it's not to say like, like some people had very, very rigid ideas about that they only had sex with straight men, right? Quote, unquote, straight studs, right? And like, and like that they were the 
quote unquote woman in the dynamic or whatever. Like there were like very, it wasn't that everybody was just like, we're queer and everything goes. And <laughs> sure, like, yeah. Everything is everything, right? Like it wasn't like that at all. Like people had, they just had very different kind of ways of thinking about identity categories and things were changing all the time. There was no shared agreement. And so it was much more kind of democratic, right? Where, you know, we live in a time when there is a fixed mainstream conception of non-heterosexual sexualities, right? Like there's a, you know, there's like a, a code for newspapers. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, the, well, like MLA conventions or whatever. You know, like it's like there's everything is is understood in these kind of fixed ways and like top bottom discourse on yeah. TikTok, for example, which is like always <laughs> so it's like like my husband's constantly saying he's like, I have never met a gay man who wasn't actually verse, and yet you would think that verse is some like impossible identity. That just like he's like, if anything, you'd be suspicious of anybody who's purely a bottom or purely a top. I know. I know. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And that kind of insistence echoes quite a bit the way that desire is articulated in the 20s and 30s, right? Like a lot of, especially among hustler culture, right? Like the hustlers could never, ever admit that they derived any pleasure because they were just, you know, it's like total top, total total straight man, whatever. Like the fact that everybody's getting something from this dynamic, it couldn't be admitted. And that you know, people are switching things up much more than... But the testimonies themselves, when you read them, you see that the acts that people are engaging in are, are so incredibly wide-ranging. There is something, I think, like liberatory about looking at old queer slang antiquated taxonomies. I think there's something where it's just like, oh yeah, the world was different and it's going to be different again. And like whatever feels stifling about the very fixed and insistent and strident ways some people are talking about identity these days, it will change because none of this stuff, none of this stuff is fixed. It's in a constant state of flux and that's what I love about looking back. It's like, oh yeah, history is different and the future is going to be really different. And I don't need to shake my fist at the youth. <laughs> I can just wait. <laughs> I think that's actually a really lovely place to end, both like very helpful, but also like wrestling with history. We've been speaking with Justin Torres, author most recently of Blackouts. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.